the sixth and seventh graders on the middle school volleyball team managed to actually win their round. Nice. They were going up against a team made up of mostly seventh and eighth graders. And well, you know, we have a, we have our group of eighth graders that are currently quarantined because we had some COVID cases. Because uh, that that's just part of this year. That that's that's what happens. But we're following all the protocols. All that's fine. But it tanked my wife's volleyball team. She was so sad. But I called her just before we set up for recording, and lo and behold, as she put it, the littles won their game. So with it, with half the team essentially, basically, wow. and particularly the physically smaller half of the oh, team. Oh wow! I mean, like there's a big, there's a noticeable difference between sixth graders and eighth graders on a volleyball court, and the sixth and seventh graders pulled it out. That's awesome! What a clutch victory for the oh, team. It's amazing, and not only that, this was the first game of uh, the conference playoffs. So they're now they won semifinals. They're now ready for the final final game, and they just might take it. That's awesome. Good stuff. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debates. My name is Josh. My name is Ethan. And today we're going to be talking about the November-December 2020 uh, Lincoln-Douglas resolution, which reads... The United States ought to provide a federal jobs guarantee. Uh, Ethan, I'm going to turn reign of this episode your way because you prepped the outline. You've done the research. I'll chime in with thoughts and opinions and ideas. Yeah, we'll need plenty of those. Plenty of those. Okay, so let's start with some definitions. This is a very short resolution. Not too much going on here. Ought, you'll see, is just your normal moral imperative. Uh, Provide is the process of making into law in this case, um, which would come in the form of an additional government obligation to the American public. And a federal jobs guarantee is summarized on Wikipedia as an economic policy proposal aimed at providing a sustainable solution to the dual problems of inflation and unemployment. Its aim is to create full employment and price stability by having the state promise to hire unemployed workers as an employer of last resort. And obviously, there's a lot of nuance there. That definition kind of had a little of like some examples, but you get the essential ideas where the government is going to employ the public for a variety of different reasons that will end up being the contentions of your cases. Josh, initial thoughts. So my first initial thought is I love this as a debate resolution, and in interest of full disclosure, I'm just going to go out on a limb and admit that I hate this as an actual real-world policy idea. Uh, I think this is an enormous step towards an overblown government, and that this is a policy idea that I'm sure we're going to have lots of arguments heard, or I at least will hear lots of arguments in rounds. You'll probably make many of these arguments that will assure me that the government can do this and can deliver on this, but that are, as always, going to fall on the question of solvency. Can these programs actually do this? Now, in your definition, I think it's really interesting that, uh, and I, for starters, I'm just going to point out, I love that you went to Wikipedia for initial research. Initial summaries. Yeah, that's right. That's the main idea. So I'm sure all of our listeners know Wikipedia is great for that initial bit, but there's a lot more to be found than can be had on Wikipedia. But the idea here is, is relatively straightforward, that everyone should be guaranteed a job in a moneyed economy. Uh, The way our economy functions, it is almost impossible to act in the modern world without a regular source of income. And so the idea here, I'm assuming, as we'll probably get into, is that uh, if everyone has a job that provides a basic level of security, that this fits with our other existent social security programs. And so this would be one other kind of recognition that there are times when people want to work but are not able to. And in that sort of situation, that's where a federally guaranteed job would come into play. 
Right. And uh, I guess my like main sort of thought or initial thought with this resolution is I like this as a debate resolution, but I don't like it as a Lincoln-Douglas debate resolution because you're, you're already forced to, it, to, to talk about policy. There's so, and granted, there's so many opportunities for plan and counterplan here, which we'll actually talk about at the end of the episode. Um, but as far as like looking at obligations, equality, and justice, you can kind of get to, like in the utilitarian sense, just sort of calculate it out who's going to be able to achieve that sort of thing better. But this, is, this just works so much better as a policy resolution, and it, that would really help you sort of dig into that a little deeper. I think it would fit better in a policy context just because you have more time in policy to get, really get the nuance of this sort of resolution. And honestly, with, the, with some examples actually existing in the real world of a federal jobs guarantee, it would be great to have this as a year-long policy resolution where you can really see how those examples have worked out in like sort of in real time. So it, I think it's a great policy resolution, not too big of it if, um, for an LD one, but that just happens sometimes like with our other one, the SAT, ACT one. I was not a fan of that one, but that's just my personal opinion. I'm sure this resolution is going to work out great just like they all do. Um, and just, just like a, a sort of throwback almost to that Coolidge Cup, I believe it was 2018, we had a, ver- a sort of similar resolution where the, the same policy-esque and plan-type material made it into the debate with the socialism-capitalism debate uh, at the Coolidge Cup, which was actually a lot of fun. And I heard, I remember this one case by Karim O'Day, was his name, was the best case for socialism I have ever heard. It was, and he was just an amazing speaker too, but he talked about, I'm pretty sure he had something about FDR's um, job guarantee in there somewhere and had all this language about the proletarian and bourgeoisie. It was a phenomenal case. So I know there's a lot of of really good substance to this case, and I'm glad that we've sort of looked at it before so we can use that to jump forward for this resolution. Yeah, the the sides are about the same on this resolution, I think, as they were there. One of of my frustrations with that resolution as a Coolidge Cup resolution was looking at the final round and particularly the panel for that final round because – as uh, hopefully our listeners know, but the the final round of the Coolidge Cup every year is judged by a panel of uh, supporters of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. So, uh, particularly that year, it was a it was a who's who's list of business people, and so I was looking at that round and thinking that the the judging audience is very much predisposed to favor the capitalism side. So in a resolution where the ground is basically, I am arguing for socialism to the exclusion of capitalism, right. and the other side being, I'm arguing for capitalism to the exclusion of capitalism, the resolution gave the speaker, ver- the, the, I think AF had the capitalist side. No, AF no? was socialist, okay. yeah. The NEG had very much a huge rhetorical advantage. And I think here, uh, this is where it's going to be pretty significant. I, I would like to think at big tournaments that do um, MJP or uh, mutual or MPJ mutually preferred judging, uh, it will be. It may be important to read the uh, read paradigms closely, as, as it always is. But here, particularly, uh, you may pay clo- You may find that you just want to notice. Start just kind of thinking through: Is my judge somebody who is going to even be open to a big government socialistic program? And if not. You want to adapt your AF case based on what you read in the paradigm. Right, which this resolution almost does solve for a little bit more than the Coolidge one did because you're advocating for a very particular socialism-esque policy and you're not just saying socialism in general. You're basically like with the Coolidge resolution, you're pitting two 
very abstract ideas against each other. With this resolution, you have a specific policy that's been implemented in specific countries where you can draw specific examples. So I think that's going to give the affirmative a bit of an advantage, especially if you can find some really good examples of federal job guarantees in the past. A lot of people will draw on the one from FDR just because it was a great safety net, which is actually one of the affirmative arguments we'll be talking about. And just for a little more of context, um, in the definition section, I mentioned that the federal jobs guarantee was to um, aid it with certain problems such as inflation and unemployment, and that this is going to be an additional government obligation, an additional government program that would, use, that would sort of act as an alternative to um, other social programs that the government currently has. It's like a potential money saver. Um, this plan has been proposed by Bernie Sanders and AOC, and you ca it kind of reminds you of most of the, the UBI um, public forum resolution in the sense that it, one popular argument that you could probably expect to see is where the affirmative side will argue that by implementing this policy, we get rid of policy X, Y, and Z and save this much money. And then if, it's, if you calculate it correctly, hopefully you'll see a net benefit there, which I think is going to be a really cool argument to have on the affirmative side. It's just a matter of making it sustainable. Uh, the sustainability is key. And also, NEG needs to be ready to press AF for clear, specific numbers. I think the, it's the easiest argument in the world to say, we will exchange programs A, B, and C for program G and therefore save money, but drop the warrants where you would actually lay out program A costs this much, B costs this much, C costs this much. By removing those costs, we save this much money. Usually, uh, this, was, this was Bernie Sanders' Achilles heel in the Democratic candidate debates we watched last year. Or was that just, that was this year. That was, was I think it Oh, was, man, that's yeah. crazy. What a year 2020 is. But, uh, but Bernie, uh, he, has, he has a really hard time when people ask him for specific numbers. And so it all kind of works out as long as he can get away with the general, oh, we will save money on health care by having a single-payer system until you go crunch the numbers. We got into this uh, with the, uh, the September-October PF resolution. Yeah. Uh, that really, uh, the Medicare for All plan it cost, I forget how much Elijah came up with, but he found pretty compelling evidence. That there Many was, trillions. There yeah. was a, there, well, I was going to say billions, but there was a billions of dollar type shortfall uh, between reduction of, oh, okay. of current welfare spending and replacing with this system. Uh, just when you look at how much of an effect that is projected to have on the private market. And you could totally find the people who attempt to crunch the numbers. I remember one very specific debate where this wasn't so much number crunching, but Pete Buttigieg was pressing Bernie Sanders so hard on the on the financials of his plan. And he didn't he didn't really have calculations to sort of like build up his own plan, but he brought up the ones or the speculative calculations for Bernie's uh, Medicare for All program and just really pressed him on it, which was a really great moment that I'd like to see in debates in high school as well, except with, you know, construction on your own side. I also found a strand um, also on the summary on Wikipedia that talks about Keynesian economics a little bit, which is kind of where your mind will sort of go when you're considering a resolution like this. But it, there's an important distinction, at least according to, the, to this source, and I would definitely go look at the footnotes if you look this up, um, <laughs> that this is not necessarily, this um, federal jobs guarantee doesn't necessarily fall into the realm of Keynesian economics because it doesn't rely on the government spending at market prices and the money goes directly to households. So, for a quick primer for any listeners who are less familiar with Keynesian economics, uh, John Maynard Keynes was a British economist who argued that basically uh, the govern government spending operates differently than personal spending. Personal spending, you eventually run out of money. Government spending, you can always print more. 
And Keynes argued that this does not have to lead to inflation problems because as long as the government manages the monetary supply, government spending basically acts like a primer on, a, on an engine, that it just sort of like sets up the economy to get rumbling again and get the, get the economy running again like a, like a lawnmower engine, basically. Yeah, like so it's manipulating supply and demand with price fixing and things of that nature. Exactly. But I, but I that's, can't imagine that's not what, what this is. Right, right. Apparently, apparently it's not what it is. I'm sure there's other sources that say otherwise, but I can't imagine being the, the person in charge of logistics of a of Keynesian economic system. Like, that would just be a headache. Oh, well, yeah. You need an accounting wizard, honestly. I'm just going to double down on the Austrian economic system, which would argue that Keynes is a convoluted spreadsheet that nobody can really master. Or to uh, put it in the line of Thomas Jefferson from uh, the, the play Hamilton, not the actual Jefferson, but Lin-Manuel Miranda's Jefferson, who said, uh, Hamilton's financial plan is too many damn pages for any man to understand. Yeah. That's, that's Keynes in a nutshell. So if, I guess we could sort of point out just, or name drop a couple of examples of where you might want to start when looking for a federal jobs guarantee in other countries. Um, just like I, we always talk about other countries aren't the same as the United States and that everybody always tries to push you in the debate when you bring up another country. It's like, oh, like we're the last one with compulsory voting. Australia is nothing like the United States. Like it just gets annoying. So uh, make sure your links are solid there. But uh, that all, argument always seems to sort of end in a wash anyways and it's not that big of a deal um, you could look at the national workshops in france in 1848 uh, the soviet union also had a federal job guarantee for quite a while from 1928 to 1991 um, and the, of course fdr's program in the united states the works progress administration from 1935 to 1943 um, which will sort of actually flow into one of the affirmative points that we're going to go over and just to kind of lay out some values first, too. And I want to get, get your thoughts. Before on we these. get to values, uh, just one quick thing to note uh, on a historical lit from a historical angle. 1848 is a really key year, so I just think it's interesting that you, that's yeah. the these national workshops were there. Uh, that was the very experimental year throughout Europe, where there were over 18 different attempts to have a socialistic revolution all around Europe. That was a that's the culmination of about 50 years of theorizing about different ways of setting up the economy. And I'll just point out that none of those revolutions worked. Uh, the dates you give us for the Soviet Union, uh, that's well into the founding of the Soviet Union about by about a decade. But then the Soviet Union guarantees everybody a job. One of the key things that I, I think we'll get to when we're talking about values in a minute is the dignity that is conferred by work. Uh, and that's something that a government really can't do. So uh, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China rather famously were perfectly happy to give people jobs that were absolutely meaningless. So the uh, example I remember reading about years ago was a man who was giving a job, given a job to dig a ditch and then fill in the ditch and then dig the ditch again and fill it in. He had a job. He was receiving payment from the government so that the government could say every citizen has a job. But there's something missing there. That's not an actual job that is conferring anything to him. Um, so, and I will also just point out that in the if anybody is really intrigued by the Works Progress Administration and the welfare argument on uh, United States history, do be sure to look at research on both sides because there is a lively historical debate about whether or not welfare spending pulled the United States initially out of the Depression, that then with that art, and that was finished by our entrance into World War II, or whether or not welfare spending was the initial start of a ballooning national debt that has continued to this day. So the economic argument there is pretty key. Make sure you look at that in full. Right. On to values. Values. And you're gonna be you might be a little surprised I didn't put dignity in here and just as a to sort of 
preface that. I couldn't. I can never make dignity work. I, I, I really can't. I, I know will, you're gonna throw it in there. I'm gonna the add it to the outline. I, I'm. I am have full confidence that somebody listening to this can make dignity work as a value. I've tried it many times and I can't do it because if I if I went to a traditional LD tournament, maybe like in you know give me a, give me a very lay trad LD state stereotype. Like give me a state. Where would I find very traditional LD? Uh, North Carolina, actually. Okay, but North Carolina, but, but like, like in the Dogwood middle. Dogwood League. Okay, Dogwood, but more traditional, like in the middle of a forest in Asheville type of LD <laughs> tournament. Dignity might work as a really good value because that example that you gave of the guy, you know, he's going to dig the hole, fill the hole, dig the hole, fill the hole. Like he's getting paid, but something's missing there. Yeah, and if you take this to Princeton, they're going to be like, okay, but how, like, how does, what is like the mental health implications of digging a hole and filling the hole and how does that connect to dignity and how do you like link that together? Like you can't just say there's something oh, missing. You could, you could shell that out. Yeah, you could, the, but I, I can't I, do it. I, I, I wouldn't fair. recommend That's dignity. That's fine. It's just, when I see it, it's just like, oh, it's like nice to think that humans have dignity but they don't in the debate world. They should, they should. in the debate world. They, no, they don't on debate cases. Everybody in the debate world has dignity. I'm just going to correct that. All right. Well, now that you are uh, hopefully, now that we've depressed everybody and uh, okay. got everybody super excited about debate, tell, Ethan, tell us what affirmative values you, you're, you're interested in on this resolution. Societal welfare for both because it's a policy resolution. So, I mean, what, why are you going to implement a policy if the goal of the policy is not societal welfare? I mean, unless, unless you're brave enough to go on a more abstract sort of dignity level than that, if you're going to have a practical value, which just, like, hurts me to say that, then societal welfare, I think, is a really great way to go. There are so many cards that are already pre-cut that you could find super easy to sort of justify in that one, two, three, four sort of format why societal welfare is a desirable value. And then if you throw – or you could even do utilitarianism sort of as another one um, on affirmative that I thought of. And that will just give you some super easy access to cards and impacts to justify why that value is actually valid and should be considered in the round. They're also super easy values to weigh. I think the affirmative has great access to those values. If you want to um, take it in a little bit more of an abstract direction, I would recommend equality and stability. Um, or sorry, yeah, equality and stability. There's a nuance on the neg too that we'll get to in a second. But equality, just because every, like, sort of tying it to the idea that everybody should have a job and then tying that to some kind of impact or arguments that you have about the success of federal jobs guarantee, if you find a good success story, you could easily impact that to equality within or equality under the government, which I think would be an interesting framework. And stability sort of ties into that economic safety net idea that federal jobs guarantees programs sort of are associated with. If you can prove that this is a, that federal jobs guarantees are a viable safety net for society when they fall into things like the Great Depression or coronavirus, maybe, then you could potentially make the argument that this is the best way to maintain stability is by implementing this program permanently and then hopefully proving that it could last in a permanent sort of environment. As far as negative goes, I'm thinking a value, a great value would be sustainability. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't jump to neg yet. I oh, you want to, okay, yeah, dignity. go for it. Go, you, you, you're you, going to make your case for dignity? Yes. Okay, go, go. Yes, uh, of course I'm going to make my case for dignity. You, you've already shredded it, but I'll just point out, I, uh, at least at, now I have I've never been to Princeton before, but at the Yale tournament, uh, even when I, I ended up judging two of the out rounds and I heard traditional cases that made it into out rounds and I heard traditional cases that managed to respond to progressive cases. But was it traditional enough to use dignity as a value? Uh, maybe not. Okay. I'll grant you that. Okay. Uh, so dignity is a, uh, though I did hear one that rested, she actually managed to run deontology against util. And did she win? Yes. 
proud. So, I need to meet this girl. I know. I, I put a note in her ballot that I would love for her to send me her case because I want her I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get her seven prong attack on Util, but she just like ran through this beautiful attack on why Util is terrible. And I was like, Yes, finally someone shredded Util. Oh, those cards, those are like the golden text. I, I know, need access and to that. I yeah. I have my flow of it, but it's scribbled and probably impossible to interpret now. Anyway. So if you were going to run Dignity, you would need to set it up a little bit. This would be, uh, I also saw a couple really interesting philosophy LD cases, and I think I'm starting to understand how people put those together. I don't have it down yet, but a couple more of those, and I think I'll, I'll see the structure better. This is closer to that than what you're describing. So uh, this would be something close to a philosophy approach to LD, where you would want to assert that there is a, that uh, basically you'd need to establish that work is about more than just survivability or benefit, that work actually confers dignity on people and that there are plenty of mental health harms. I, you already kind of saw where I was going with some of this. Mental health harms uh, on, in the lack of dignifying work. Uh, there's plenty of data out here that uh, you, you'll probably find already adjacent to this case. Unemployment tracks pretty closely with suicide rates and depression rates and all kinds of other negative things. But really, just having a job is not enough. The reason people end up going to work is ultimately not just because they uh, want to have a job. There, there's a reason for it. And that reason actually does matter. So uh, I would then... now. This definitely would not fly in an LD round, but if I was actually if I was writing this as a paper, I would track this back to uh, Genesis chapter one and the creation of man in God's image, and then the command in Genesis two for human beings to work. So you've got a good teleology argument there that our purpose is to work, and when we don't work, we actually see immense harm done to the human person. Which I think there's a lot of evidence going on right now about like this is why people have done all kinds of other work when the economy is shut down during COVID. Uh, people haven't just stopped working. There's a really good argument to be made that it's actually impossible for people to not work. Now that's looking at work as the things that you do, the way you expend energy in a positive way, not just what you do for money. Uh, so that's where I would kind of go to. I would tack, uh, I, I would try and look at the nature of the human person and then dignity and work as all tied together. Uh, I'll just mention three sources quickly. Uh, if anybody is interested in this, uh, the first of those is a, is a pair of books by a German philosopher named Joseph Pieper. He's got a great little book. It's about 90 pages long, so it's pretty skimmable, called Festival of the World, where he looks at the philosophical importance of the cycle of work and rest. be a great source to draw on. Uh, he has a second book that's probably more famous called Leisure as the Basis of Culture that's kind of circling around similar themes. Uh, Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences, has a chapter in it. Chapter 5 is particularly dedicated to work and the way that work functions in a capitalistic society. The last one I'll mention is a uh, think tank publishing group called the Von Hildebrand Project that runs out of the Franciscan University of Steubenville in Steubenville, Ohio. They have a lot of interesting resources that are looking to explore the different facets of the human person. Some point in the future, I would love to have uh, a guy named John Henry uh, Crosby on here to talk particularly about personalism as the philosophical strand that the Von Hildebrand Project is dealing with. But work is one of those things that every human being does. It's something that we do from as soon as we're old enough for parents to tell us, wash the dishes, 
watch the dog, <laughs> clean the house. We start working, and as we grow older, our work continues and it gets more complex. Eventually, we're able to work in such a way that people pay us for stuff. So work is, there's something there that's tied to a universal human nature and universal human dignity. The reason I bring all of that up is because the big question that you would have on dignity is where I think dignity can go af or neg. Either you make the argument that dignity is necessary and jobs are what help confer in part dignity, therefore we need a jobs guarantee, or you argue that the government is completely incapable of providing the kind of job that actually confers dignity. Because the job that confers dignity is one that is tied to creation, and it is the market that creates, not the government. I love all of that, and it's definitely the more honorable way to go in a debate round. I would argue that it's not the easiest way, but it would be such a beautiful case if it, if it came to be in a really strong and argumentative manner. I guess my only sort of questions about that would be, on affirmative, how would you sort of prove that suicide and depression are symptoms of a lack of dignity? And which is a, a sort of a minor question, but I can totally see that being like a cross X thing. I would I wouldn't be looking for proof as much as strong correlation. That's yeah. as, that's as far as I would go because that's the kind of now that's certainly the sort of data that uh, maybe a less ethical debater could certainly read plenty of stats and cards and then assert. But a more an honorable debater running this kind of case, I think the most you can say is strong correlation. You can't say cause, even though you can't really measure dignity. But, uh, may, but maybe you True. can't wait. Maybe you can't measure, but maybe you can sense yeah, an increase or decrease in dignity. You can, but I mean, I think if you're if you open that door, I think you're only a hop, skip, and a jump from saying uh, that the worst of the gulags or the concentration camps or current concentration camps in uh, communist China are justifiable. Wait, but they didn't. It wasn't. Weren't there programs like for doing work? You could say, but it wasn't meaningful. Like. It was just busy work, essentially. Yeah. I feel, like, I feel like, okay, that doesn't necessarily fit under a federal jobs guarantee, but that just sort of got my mind churning. Well, yeah, on. but like that's when you're, when you're thinking about federal jobs guarantee, I think you have to consider what's the quality of these jobs. Okay, going but to be. I don't think America's going to turn into a gulag. But. No, that wasn't where I was going. Okay. What I was trying to say with all of that is that if you are going to say, okay, dignity only exists if it's measurable, then you lose access to condemning some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century as assaults on human dignity. That sounds good. Human that dignity good. doesn't – it doesn't have to be measurable to be real. We have dignity. Every human has it as a part of our ontological nature. It's not something that increases or decreases based on what we do. It's simply there as part of who we are. Okay. Okay. Well, on to the neg. What do you make of what? What neg values are you thinking, Ethan? These and these aren't really neg values that you would see in every typical round. I've I've sort of dabbled with these a little bit. Um, I think societal welfare from the affirmative also fits, just because it's a, a policy-oriented resolution, and that's sort of the general goal of policy-oriented things and policies in general. Um, so I think as far as using societal welfare on the neg. You would want to to sort of position that to show how a free market economic system contributes to societal welfare. You could look at um, different indices that rate countries on sort of levels of capitalism. I know that sounds kind of weird, but someone actually did it, and many people did it for the previous debate on levels of democracy. They had a whole list of criteria that you would rate on this scale to this scale and then sort of add it up and then you have the highest democracy number. I can totally see people going in that direction with capitalism and showing that the countries that have the highest capitalism number, quote unquote, would um, best preserve or best meet societal welfare in terms of wealth, in terms of unemployment, in terms of anything related to that. 
Um, I also think you could run something like economy or economic well-being on Neg, although I don't recommend it just because that's extremely dehumanizing and very calculated. It's, it's almost like what the version of running utilitarianism, except only for money. And you could impact it out to sort of have humans as a later priority, but I, I think using economy or economic well-being as the value itself is just sort of a misstep. Like, it's placing the value in the wrong place because you, you use economic well-being to promote the value of, say, societal welfare, dignity, um, util, whatever you decide to use. And I, so I feel like that's kind of almost inverting the case a little bit, but, so, but someone might run an argument or a value of something related to economy or economic well-being. But I think would, societal welfare gets you there better. Would you see the economic well-being there being linked to the fact that this would be a massive governmental expenditure that really has no end goal in sight? Or where, where do you see the economic well-being kind of functioning, what, what's the argument to be made from that on NEG? What, I guess like the sort of structure of the case would look like once you have economic well-being, which you would define as in different terms of factors of like wealth, unemployment, these things of that nature, then you would link it to human happiness or human welfare, which really should be the value is what I'm saying. Like that's Yeah, I'm just having trouble seeing that on NEG. It sounds like that would be a better argument on AF. Well, would, AF would you is... argue that NEG has access to a better economic outcome? Well, I mean, I think Neg has the has access to saying if we actually pass this, we will collapse the American economy because what will end up functionally happening is that these government jobs will be more stable and they may be higher paying than a lot of current private sector jobs, which will lead to the collapse of various private sector businesses, right. which will then trickle down to uh, lower tax revenues and we will ultimately see the destruction of the current market forces. Right. So in if America. you if you value economic well-being, you should vote against the affirmative. Is sort yeah. Of what okay. I'm saying there. All right. Yeah. I'm I'm seeing that that makes sense. And then I guess the the last value on Neg that I would be really interested in seeing a case for is sustainability. You don't see that one a lot. Usually on Neg, all you see is is util. I see morality a lot. Although I would I would think that's a little bit of a reach for this resolution and kind of abstract for such a specific one. But sustainability would be difficult to put your foot down as a value. Like, it's difficult to look at the judge and be like, okay, the judge, like, the affirmative value is human life and I value sustainability. Like, th that just doesn't seem like it would weigh well if you put it like that, but it's true. I mean, if you look at the negative sort of contentions that you can see being used, which will, which will be the next part of sort of segment that we're going to talk about, then you could access sustainability very easily, although I would more desire that sustainability be the theme of a certain contention rather than the value of the entire case. But I think it's also, it's a very um, doable value. But I think societal welfare definitely wins out on NEG because if you want any sort of welfare for society, you should vote against AF is kind of the idea there. And then on affirmative, you can play with it a little bit. You've got a little bit more access. So societal welfare or util on NEG and then util clearly on AF if you can access it. Um, societal welfare, dignity if you want to, to go a little crazy, perhaps equality. Um, and any, any thoughts on the negative values? Uh, I'd probably add one. I'm not sure which one of these is a value and which one is the criterion. Uh, but I would want to do something on here with a tendency towards tyranny and particularly a, the massive governmental overgrowth, uh, which I think fits somewhere inside the realm of libertarian philosophy, mm -hmm. where you would assert something to the nature of, uh, and this, this honestly might all fit as a criterion underneath societal welfare, that uh, society is our, our particularly American society, since we have the United States as the actor in the resolution. The United States is best served when we have an independent, self-governing citizenship that is self-reliant and is creating their own opportunities. And that the economic success of the United States has largely 
been the result of independent self-initiated projects, not giant governments protecting people from mistakes. What we have in the affirmative world is the creation of a giant nanny state that is going to infantilize adults and treat adults as people who need to be saved from consequences, when, which there's an excellent free market economics argument to be made that without real consequences, the economy or the market forces don't send actual signals. So if you don't have the threat of losing your job, since uh, Ethan, I'll use your Starbucks position since you work at Starbucks. I if didn't you, lose my job. I it, didn't right, lose my job. Right. You're not going to. You're no, not I'm going not, to. I'm it's not, not going to happen. But if you didn't job. really have the threat of losing your job, which you wouldn't really in this sense, because you can always have another job that would pay at some level. And people are probably going to propose some level of reasonable pay scale, like, I don't know, 15 to 20 bucks an hour or something. That's just going to seem better. It's going to oh, be yeah, better yeah. than the low-level job that most people start at in yeah. their careers. Well, in which case, why would you work to the highest of your ability if you can get a government job that is unlosable elsewhere? What we functionally do on a psychological level is trade independence for dependence. Yes. And we train a citizenship to rely on the government rather than citizens who exercise their capacities to bring something into society and make society better. It sounds like a perverse incentive, just a traditional I, case of economic perverse incentive. Which very is, much so. I think you could make a great argument for our neg, which we'll get to. But if you're good, we'll move on to affirmative sure, arguments. Sure, let's do it. Walk um, us through them. I see a great argument for economic safety net, and then there are so many opportunities to use COVID impacts here, at least that I can see. Okay. And which people, people I'm just going to interrupt go you and say that okay. I hate COVID impacts. Okay. He, Josh hates COVID impacts. Everyone else likes COVID impacts. You'll be okay. As, just don't run them if you read his paradigm, which I'm sure is very long and anti-COVID. It's like four paragraphs. I have a really short paradigm. I've read like book-long paradigms. I know, before. those guys yeah, are And nuts. you have to go strike them too. I, I can't believe, I, I don't even know how you pulled that off. But economic safety net... Um, a federal jobs guarantee would help us in times of crisis. And it, at this time, just culturally speaking, it's very difficult for the other side to come back and be like, well, yeah, when are we ever going to have a crisis? The last one was, oh, wait, we're still in it. <laughs> like, it's, it's just like, I think like you don't want to like, you know, use a, a terrible situation like COVID to like, like make it sound bad like that. But the world's biggest crisis in a while is now. So if you're going to, if there's any ideal context to run this type of argument in, it's 2020. Um, so economic safety net, maybe you could link that to COVID. Maybe some speculative articles have already put out there about like, hey, we need to vote for, you know, I don't know. I don't, can't say that Biden would do this or Trump would do this, but vote or at least get people in the Senate that would be receptive to this, this sort of idea. And this is why it would be good. I'm sure you could dig up some really good resources there. Um, one of the coolest ones that, and more, more, most like generic stock argument-ish ones is a practical solution to unemployment. Um, I can, and that was actually part of the sort of summary and definition that we saw uh, in the Wikipedia summary that I was telling you about earlier. Um, with a federal jobs guarantee, the point of the federal jobs guarantee is to limit unemployment. And if it's a really good federal job guarantee, hopefully eliminate unemployment. Um, that would require a lot of solvency sort of arguments and a lot of numbers, a ton of crunching numbers, which would look super cool, especially if your affirmative value was utilitarianism and you were able to pull that off. It'd probably take a lot of research and a lot of hard work, but I have no doubt that a lot of people would be able to pull that off. A practical solution to unemployment, plenty of COVID impacts, again, to be made there because unemployment is at an extreme, an extremely high rate right now. Um, 
Also, I, I think a really good thing to bring up here, too, is that you're not arguing for this policy in a vacuum. You're arguing for this policy as a replacement to existing welfare policies, which helps you weigh it against the status quo in a really cool way that not all affirmative cases can do. Um, by proposing a federal jobs guarantee as a solution to other expensive welfare programs, you can show that you're not in support of other programs which have been run ineffectively. Um, I'm thinking, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like the UBI. Like the, one of the main arguments for the UBI was, hey, if we give people, if we just give people money, then we can eliminate this and this and possibly healthcare. If you're like super radical, uh, healthcare, food stamps, all this stuff would go away. We just have a UBI. Well, how about even better? We give people the money, but we make them work for it. So it's like a UBI that you have to work for. You could eliminate all the other social programs. And I'm sure in an idealistic sort of debate case, seven minute calculated sense, you would actually see a profit on the affirmative side. I'm thinking that's the way it's going to look. Even though, I, I again, in practice, these things look different. It would be very expensive. You may not actually be able to replace all these things because of specific criteria, the way the, the plan is sort of written. But hey, if you can make a really cool plan on affirmative for something like that and replace all of these for this one, that's a hard affirmative to come back from if you're on negative. Like, I'd love to see that one NC and, and one NR try to deal with that because that would just be one Goliath of an argument. I think you're right about that. I think it'd be very interesting. I'm just going to say, give one suggestion of something that I would not want to see. Because uh, I've seen, I saw this at uh, two tournaments during the September October cycle, where it seemed like a lot of people wanted to have a very soft link to Donald Trump and then basically say, if we do, if we affirm today's resolution, then Donald Trump won't win. That is just a ridiculous argument. That's and lame. It, it was just a lame argument. Uh, it was right there. I mean, there was one about Donald Trump hates climate change. Therefore, if we vote, if if you solve for, if you vote affirmative, you will prevent Donald Trump from winning. That was the one winning. against me. Well, that I was, saw it too. Yes, and I was okay. So like, I, I was there <laughs> and I lost to it. There, open. I lost to the Donald Trump argument. I don't know. I mean, it was it was Yale. It was relatively progressive. You guys know that's not my style. Um, but this, so he made, first of all, he was like wearing his hoodie and his gaming headset on, looked like he just woke up and, you know, tossed this together from the shreds of a couple of other cases in the Google drive. And I was like, oh man, like I could do this. He's like, you know, like with compulsory voting, then these states will vote red. You don't want that. And then there was just like one link to it. And then half the case was impacts. Like you always see with the climate change, uh, util oriented cases. And my judge was like, Ethan, you should have just said that. Like, instead of Trump just getting reelected, Trump has already caused climate change. We're all going to die anyway, so why not have compulsory voting? And I was like, uh, um, good night. Leave. <laughs> We're not talking. Don't, so, don't tell me that. There is, as hopefully even our, our not terribly well-researched yet uh, suggestions have, have pointed out, there is a ton of really interesting stuff here actually on the resolution. So do the research to make good, solid, affirmative arguments, and don't take the uh, kind of the – I wouldn't call it cheating, but I would definitely call it a, a, a lesser shortcut to just kind of make a beeline for something someone that half the country hates and just argue about Donald Trump. That's, Instead, argue about the federal jobs guarantee. That's a better move. It just to seems make. like a way to just not have as much fun with it. Now, I can't see everyone's goal is to have fun, so people just want to pick up those quick and easy rounds, which is, I mean, that's fine. Like, you, yeah. can, you can do it. I just think it's more fun to run the cooler cases and yeah. the, the more well-researched ones. There's some dignity in that, perhaps. There, oh, there it is. Well, here, let me, I'm going to run through what I think your, your points are on Neg and then add to it at the end. Okay, you, go for as it. As you feel free. Uh, okay, so the first argument we're going to suggest on Neg is that this completely ignores free market economics. I think we've already hinted at throughout 
the, one of the more interesting questions in economics is exactly what does it take to create a job? And it's really hard to answer that question because somebody has to make the business, which requires getting startup capital, which requires having an idea to convince other people that this will work. And then it has, they have to get usually borrow the money to make their business work and then stay afloat long enough to actually make a profit. Meanwhile, they're paying people as little as they possibly can just, and the, uh, the founder of the business is not taking a salary usually for three to five years. And then about six or seven years in, usually the business is profitable. And that's when you start expanding and hiring more people. That entire process goes into, for example, Ethan having a job at Starbucks or me having a job teaching at Thales Academy. Someone else went to all the work to start the business and make that happen. This just kind of assumes the magic power of fiat, the government can, boom, create millions and millions of jobs. Uh, that really just literally doesn't work. The second argument we're going to suggest is the wasted labor. I've already given kind of one example. Uh, as a, another example that is probably not citable in a round, but would be great for getting your mind in the negative, uh, negative world. Uh, if you're familiar with the book The Phantom Tollbooth, there is a great little fable in there about the terrible tedium where Milo is required to move grains of sand from one mountain to another. And he has like three different tasks that are all completely pointless jobs. These are the kinds of jobs that would be established under this program. There literally is not enough labor for the government to give people that is substantive. Also, if somebody – somebody will do this. Probably everyone will do this. This is a little prediction. And, um, and definitely like, let me know if you see it too. Uh, what's the res at gmail.com. If somebody, if somebody cites a card on affirmative – that says how many potential spaces for jobs or how much how like this how much work is needed it's like man if we had this many more construction workers we could have this many more cities which would create this many more jobs and it's, I, i'm sure it's out there can somebody please come back from that and say how can you guarantee that the federal jobs program will actually meet those particular needs because the the need that the federal jobs guarantee is meeting is the need for unem or to not be unemployed it's the need for employment it's not the need the specific needs for very specific jobs that the society needs at the time. Now, somebody on affirmative can very, very easily say, well, we could just put, you know, 10,000 jobs here, 10 here, 10,000 here, 1 million here. Come on. Like, if someone's going to do it. A lot of people are probably going to do it. Press them on how. Because the affirmative, this is the affirmative burden of proof here. And if they have a plan, it's darn sure they're affirmative burden of proof. Like, how do you expect us to just place these jobs here? Particularly it's not that when the jobs you just mentioned, let's take construction, that's skilled labor. Uh, that, that's not, not just anybody can be hired on a construction site. Sure, anyone can pick up nails, but not everybody can frame a building. Not everybody can go be a welder. Not everybody can be responsible for the structural integrity of a 10-story apartment building. You can't just shove people in there through application to the Federal Jobs Bureau or whatever. You need skilled labor. I mean, that, that's functionally what this would result in. I mean, we'd yeah. have a bureau responsible for making random jobs. Now, which then brings into the cost of this, because we've got a, uh, a, if you're on NEG and you're not using most of your cross to press for cost, I, I don't know that you're, you're doing your job right on NEG. Because this is going to be another place where, particularly if Affirmative takes this in a practical policy progressive-esque direction where they sort of do assume a policy framework and thus the burden of solvency, then you need to press them on, okay, where's the funding? What tax measure is going to uh, make all of this happen? How much will this cost? 
How many jobs are we funding? Not just creating, but literally funding. Uh, how how is that going to work? Yeah, and even I would even prep like for this resolution an entirely separate solvency doc of just like every single card that you can make that once you're done with your negative rebuttal of all the other arguments, it's like, all right, time to go off. And then you have like three pages, like, you know, bolded and underlined of just solvency stuff because that, that would just be awesome to just watch a negative do that. I love your last question on the outline for uh, under negative arguments. I'm just like, how do you fire people? Now, I know we're going to go in different directions on this, so I want to hear yours first because oh, okay. I know you're not going to say what I'm going to say. Okay, all right, that's fair. Uh, I'm thinking there about like if... I'm, that takes me back to my first year teaching at Thales. It was my first professional job. I had had lots of part-time jobs. I used to work for a company called Learning RX. I ran my own lawn business for several years. But teaching was my first kind of real, full, paycheck with benefits type job. And I had a bad habit of arriving about five minutes late. And, no way. You oh, yeah. Me. I know. I, I don't do it Demon anymore. students? Well, uh, yeah. This was seven years. This was eight <laughs> years ago. Uh, but then uh, Dr. Edwards, who was Mrs. Edwards then, but uh, Dr. Edwards one day just stopped me in the hallway, very pointedly said, you are late four days out of five. Be on time. And she went on about her business. And that stuck in my head. And I got to thinking, like, that's the lady who writes the performance review uh, we, we, and teaching is a hard profession to be fired from per se. You really have to screw up to be fired from teaching, mostly because it's really hard for schools to find competent teachers to replace you. But what's really easy for a school to do is to not renew your contract. So it's sort of a delayed firing, but I got thinking about like, okay, I want this job next year. I, I like my job. I like what I'm doing, but I need the boss's good opinion to keep my job. And so I started literally setting my alarm 15 minutes earlier. I started making my goal to arrive at school 10 minutes before the minimum arrival time because ultimately I didn't want to be fired because I was newly married and working through grad school and I needed my paycheck. Now, teaching is an exhausting, tiring, never-ending kind of job. If there had been an easily procurable, stable job that paid even a little bit less, but meant I had to work a lot less, I probably would have been out of here, especially if that job was guaranteed. So I think that that's at least what my mind goes to is that like, that makes it really hard to, uh, it's another perverse incentive, I suppose, because mm -hmm. it removes yeah. the right incentive of at-will employment. What also, do you see in that question? So I, I saw actually this argument listed in an article somewhere. Um, I, I don't know which article it was, but I, that came to my mind as well, the perverse incentive idea. But the article also had like this one sort of offshoot paragraph about the reasons for which the government fires people, if it does, like it are, ex are especially subject to, to um, what was it called? Social scrutiny. So if it looks like the government is firing someone because they're being sexist, racist, anything of that nature, that's not going to fall on one private corporation that could just go out of business or change their ways. It's going to fall on the U.S. government, which I don't really know how you would impact that out, but it kind of just got me thinking and sort of like stopped me for a second because I didn't expect that to be the way that argument went. Um, I think the perverse incentive is a much more sort of streamlined way to get to your value and where you're trying to go. But there is sort of like an interesting idea there that now the government is sort of in charge and it's the government's full responsibility to make sure that 
you're not racist and not sexist, essentially. Well, see, you, you got me thinking a different direction. I thought about okay, this. Okay, what's, what's another direction? I mean, that, that we functionally have, and I think this is, ter- this is somewhat terrible for all kinds of other reasons that we don't need to get into today, but we functionally have a social code of acceptable words and languages and behaviors. Right. And if you, vi- especially in the last two years, if you violate the unwritten but mostly understood social code of behavior or speech, you lose your job. And, and it's, re- it's relatively difficult for you to be hired in the same field if people know that you lost your job because you said this thing in public or you did this action in public or private and so on. Well, this kind of gets rid of that sort of social consequence. It also really skews the value of going to college. Which could be a great thing. Oh, there's so many. Wait, that could be an affirmative benefit because college debt. It's like, oh this, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like if you're gonna federal jobs guarantee. Like you're just gonna be working for the government or maybe a private corporation plus the government. Like is the second half of the society sort of thing. But that could save on college costs. I mean, it could. It which could also be a oh no nobody who's nobody who's going to tournaments is gonna run this because I I don't think it, well I don't know maybe I'm wrong. I, I think far too many people go to college in general. Um, I think people go to college for the wrong reasons. Uh, their college is a great good. As anybody who listens to our, I think it's like a year ago, two years ago, we did the Coolidge uh, College episode yeah, series. Yeah. But college can be a great good, but a lot of people go to college basically because they think they will make more money. They don't go to actually study. They go because they just need to get a degree. This could solve for that. We're saying, well, fine, you don't want to go to college here, get this kind of job, and you can make a federally guaranteed minimum employment I didn't employment expect any thing. of this. We should just write in the footnotes, like, hey, if you're on a time crunch, skip to the second half of this, this episode because <laughs> there's, like, there's, like, so many things we didn't think of or plan for that are just coming up now, uh, but it's, is, it's all yeah. great. I'm going to sort of outline a little thing here. I think Affirmative has so much opportunity for a plan. I kind of – I don't really – like saying it just because I suck at making plans, which is like totally biased. T- plenty of people are amazing at making affirmative plans. I think there's an awesome affirmative plan to be made here for eliminating a plethora of other social programs and then replacing it with the federal jobs guarantee. Because it doesn't mean that you're getting rid of the private sector. It just means that I know I know what you're thinking. It doesn't necessarily mean you're getting rid of the private sector. No, it just means thought. that okay. It just means that you're filling the gap essentially of unemployment. So it's not like the free market has just disappeared overnight. There's there's still something there, but you're getting rid of all the other social programs that are weighing down, you know, our our tax revenue, our ability to pay for things, and replace it. Also, now I have a friend that put this idea in my head for as it relates to healthcare. And I'm going to attempt to articulate the same argument, but I won't name drop them here because if I butcher the argument, I don't want to make them sound dumb. But <laughs> they, just to, to put this on the record, I doubt they're going to listen to this, but this friend is a genius. Okay. So I think the way it went was, in, in terms of healthcare at least, was instead of having like universal healthcare or anything like that, just have the government require private insurance companies to provide healthcare at a certain level. I think, I think it went something like that. Or no, no, sorry, no, no, it wasn't that. That already happens, I think. But the, no, it doesn't. Okay. What, sorry, I'm like completely mixed up. What I'm trying to say is that I think he said make the government require companies, all companies, to provide health insurance. So then you kind of like have the private sector still there, and you're not just taxing everyone and making everyone pay for it. Yeah. yeah. I say I told you I'd butcher the you argument, but a, there like it is. A, a bare bones sort of absolute worst scenario, terrible healthcare plan that everyone is forced to offer. 
the sort of thing that like, okay, if you... Uh, no, like force companies to pay for the private insurance. Like all of them have to offer it as part of a benefits package. Yeah, I know, I know you're cringing at it, but look, I think the I think the reduction of social programs is the best affirmative plan. Even though I don't really make plans, so take that with a grain of salt. But maybe not only just let the government guarantee jobs, but if the government required the the private sector to hire people, at least with maybe some sort of basic competence test in that field or area, that might be an area to look. Even though it's extremely abstract, and I kind of just thought of it, but it was in my head, so there it is. Um, also, for a potential negative strategy, counter plans are all over the place here, and especially disads too. I think disads would be like even better on neg. But for a negative counter plan, run like running something related to the free market or being like, okay, federal jobs guarantee that's way overshooting the goal. It's too expensive. Blah blah blah. Like this kind of reminds me of the healthcare debate we were having before when we were talking about. Um, Medicare for All bill of 2019, the public forum we just had. And I think Biden and was pulling for something that was a Medicare for All who wants it, like that kind of um, counter plan idea, uh, where we take part of the affirmative, the plan inclusive counter plan, just take part of it. It's like, you know what, we'll keep this, keep this. But there's this social program on the affirmative you absolutely can't get rid of for X, Y, and Z. So we'll just keep that and then roll with the rest of the plan. And look, negative wins. Okay. okay. Um, I have an idea. I wanted to leave that pause there in case if we decide to cut this, it's easy to cut. Um, oh, so okay. I'm gonna give an idea, and you tell me what you think of it. And if it's if it's terrible, we'll we'll just cut this part out. Okay. Um, on a counter plan idea, what if you uh, you could pair on neg? You could pair a really strong immigration policy where we ban everybody who is in the country illegally who currently does a mass amount of migrant work and a mass amount of uh, unofficial cash only businesses scattered all throughout the country. And so, like, literally, give them the boot, kick them all out, and those become the federal jobs that are available. So if you want, if oh you can't God. get your own private job, you can go pick tomatoes. You can go be, like, a migrant worker in the fields, and, like, you can have jobs that literally, there, there are cash jobs that nobody wants, uh, but... This is why we read paradigms. <laughs> like, this, this is why... Okay... Right. This is, this, this is where you, you would. You this is where it. you would write two separate cases and keep it in your back pocket, and then read the paradigm very carefully and make a decision. I was thinking that the affirmative could make like a sort of a, a virtue sort of argument, almost of if we have a federal jobs guarantee, then all of the immigrants that currently don't have jobs would now have them. Uh, sort of like a basic affirmative argument. You would see that with a. It would sort of fit into a lot of other resolutions as well. That kind of just popped into my head earlier. Um, that was a very interesting idea. I don't think we're going to cut it, but I think I'm just going to say, I see it, but you need to read the paradigm. You need to read the paradigm, because like literally, if you run that, and you probably opened yourself up to all kinds of accusations. I've heard, I've heard worse things run in debate rounds, honestly. I've, I've heard okay. way worse than that. So, I mean, I, people do it. But for as far as negative ideas goes, if we're... Um, oh, wait, sorry, sorry. We're, we just did negative. Yeah. And affirmative. So I guess we're good. Closing Fun, remarks. Yeah. Uh, okay, so basically, I think this is going to be a very fun debate. I know um, we're only going to one tournament that's actually going to be using this one. Uh, so we'll, I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes, but it's not one that we're going to be kind of revising throughout the, the month cycle, but it should be a very fun debate. Um, I'm still going to put my two cents in for a strong philosophy foundation. I think you could make a great case for... Uh, basically asserting the value of work and tying that to the human person just as a, 
Uh, a bit of advice to anybody who actually takes my advice on this, which is probably not very many people. Um, Ethan's right in terms of competitive ease. It's much easier to make a weighable utilitarian calculus uh, argument with strong numbers. But what I found really interesting was that the people who really do dig into the philosophy of the subject and understand that and see how the pieces fit together, if you can make the philosophy argument, it will stick if you can respond to the utilitarian response to your own argument. For example, uh, I think I called you the night after I voted for this, but I voted for yeah. a biopower K at, uh, at Durham. I felt a little sick to my stomach voting for it. But it was because the guy actually had, like, he had read, uh, he mispronounced it, but he had read Foucault. Okay. He had read Deleuze. He understood how the arguments worked, and he linked it correctly to the resolution. This is, this is the Reddit R angry upvote, just for any Redditors out there. Really? Yes. There's an entire, there's just like, there's an entire subreddit where people post things that they really hated upvoting, but they still did it just because the person deserved it. It's a, it's a whole thing. I, that's, a whole well, that's exactly what it was. And what at least won my ballot in that case was the fact that this guy did understand the argument he was making, and he correctly defended it against his opponent. So if you are intrigued by making a more complex philosophical defense of the value of work and tying it to human dignity, dig into the sources. Dig into the philosophers who are really trying to articulate what is special about humans and what is it about special about human beings that comes out in the work that we do. And why does the work that we do have so much a part of us or why does it play so much of a part of who we are that as soon as you get a job, when people say, hey, I'm so-and-so, who are you? Your first instinct is to respond with I'm, insert name, and, this, and you tell them your job. I'm Josh, I'm a teacher, I'm a dean, I'm a podcaster, I do all these things. Well, that's something that's pretty integral to who we are. And then go to the next step. Can the government confer that same dignity through a government-provided job? Or is it enough that a government-provided job is a stopgap measure until you find the work that you were uniquely made to do? Uh, and as a quick plug for the Catholic Church, dig into the uh, doctrine of vocation for any Catholic listeners here. Ethan, closing thoughts. I, I mean... I just think this is a – at first I was kind of not liking this resolution and now I kind of like it. I think this is going to be one where it's super easy to get familiar with the stock arguments, which is going to be super nice if you run into, into any traditional cases. Uh, this is more going to be more about the cards, the specific evidence, and how many calculations you're willing to stay up late at night doing. But there's no problem with that. That's just how some resolutions turn out sometimes, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. So I think there's lots of potential to have fun with this one. Make sure to get familiar with the stock arguments. There's tons of offshoot arguments to make as far as plans and counterplans go here, especially excited for some affirmative plans that we're going to see. So yeah, I think this is going to be a good one. Get familiar with the stocks, get some good cards going, and, and take the time to dig into some good research. Um, I'm thinking think tanks especially would be really nice for this resolution because they, they do the due diligence so well, and it's really nice to just leverage that and put that in your case. And just as a quick advertisement for our next episode, uh, do check back with us because our next episode is going to be with a, an expert on the topic who leans affirmative on this one. His name is Dr. Mark Paul. Make sure I get that in the right order. It's Dr. Mark <laughs> Paul. Uh, he is an economics professor at uh, the New College of South Florida, and he's going to be joining us to discuss the idea of a federal jobs guarantee 
When I started reading up on this resolution uh, a week ago, his name and his research was cited on like six different articles that I read. He's been part of, he's written a white paper on this. He's written a couple different think tank papers on this. He's somebody who will bring all of the expertise that we've sort of circled around today uh, to to the episode and hopefully uh, to, to your benefit. Nice. I think, I think we're good. I think it's going to be a good resolution. Everyone, um, preparation is going to be good stuff. All right. And if you want to contact, contact us about this episode, get back to us with fan mail, hate mail, anything of this sort, you can do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore, or go to our website. We will post all of our episodes for free at www.whatstheres.com. And until next time... Work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.